Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. And uh, I was caught and went out while I was in that prison cell. Um, they they uh, take my wallet away. They cancel all my cards. They take my money and all that stuff. And uh, they hand me back my, my wallet and when they had me back my wallet, I had a picture of my son there, and and I uh, had a couple cards. And then I I look in it. I had like a little hole in the wallet, and I looked in it, and I had ten pieces of acid. Um, and I decided to take those ten pieces of acid while I was in that cell. And and then the <laughs> then the uh, the DA. Um, the DA calls me to the office. They have like a secret indictment and they're telling me, you know, to try to get me to snitch. And they're saying, you know, we know everything, but if you turn the people you get it from over, we'll give you a lesser sentence. We'll work with you. And I was just like crying hysterically. Like I was, I was, I was laughing. Like it was fucking crazy. I was like laughing my ass off. And I said, fuck you. And I started cursing at them. And they was like, are you okay? They noticed that I was like fucked up on some shit. And I was like, you guys gave me 10 pieces of acid back. I'm fucking tripping balls. And they threw me back in a cell. And when I go see the judge, the judge is like, you're still high? And I'm like smiling my ass off and saying like, yep. And, and then DA's like, well, we're, we're, uh, we're trying to get him 15 of life. They, I mean, there was... Your first plea was 15 of life. They was trying to charge me with the kingpin laws. Uh, I was my third felony, and and I and I fit under those qualifications, and and it was crazy, man. It was crazy. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, 
you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community. And that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Koss, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Yeah. So I was introduced to you by way of um, the guys at Brass Check and Ryan Holiday, and they told me a little bit about your story. And uh, I got a chance to see your TED Talk, and I was really, really blown away by it. So uh, it's really my pleasure to have you here. But before we get into all of that, I want to start by asking you, um, what did your parents do for a living? And how did that end up impacting uh, the choices that you've made with your life and your career? So my my parents did a a variety of things. for a living. Uh, but my, my parents are, are Dominican immigrants. Uh, my mom immigrated from the Dominican Republic when she was six months uh, pregnant with me. And we, we ended up in the Lower East Side in, uh, in the 80s where it was a very, very heavily drug infested neighborhood. And at the time, she, uh, she, she we lived on my aunt's couch. And, and that's all we had was 
her and I in a small little tenement apartment, and it was about six or seven of us in that apartment. Um, and and what she did for a living was she worked. Uh, she worked at a at a factory, uh, and this is this was my like childcare. Um, she would basically like sew like these little small baby clothing t-shirts or I don't I don't really remember I was pretty young um, but she would stick me under the sewing machine and that was like my childcare right there mm-hmm. um, my 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 dad um, my dad was not around at, at that time uh, he was still in Dominican Republic and coming back and forth uh, and and taking care of my sisters over there so we my sisters and I grew up a different like lifestyle. They uh, they lived in the Dominican Republic till they was like about thirteen. They were they were a little bit older than I, and it was just my mom and I uh, for a little while, and and that's what we did. What um, if any do you, do you feel was the impact of not having your father in the picture there that early in your life? It was it was definitely an impact. Uh, I didn't have any like major or like older, you know, fatherly figure in my life. Uh, and, and I guess that the, the males that were a part of my life were my cousins. Um, my cousins were not a, a really good role models. They would, they would do like crazy shit to me when I was a kid and make me do like dumb, dumb ass shit. Um, excuse my language. Uh, but I, I remember like my cousin Claudio was like the, the guy who I looked up to and what he did was like, I mean, he was arrested and been in prison a couple of times. Um, but he, I remember him giving me a, a, a hit of Coke when I was 11 years old. And, um, and I was, I was, I was bugging. I was, my hands started trembling and I felt like my nose and my throat go numb and, and I was like, what the hell was going on? What the hell you gave me? And and uh, he gave, so he tricked me. He gave it to me, you know, those like Vicks, uh, like nasal sprays. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he stuck like Coke in it. And like, he was like, take a big hit. And he was already fucking, you know, twisted in the streets and doing all that crazy shit. And, uh, and, he, and he, he gave me that. And I was, I tried to like hit him right after and he beat the crap out of me. Uh, but it was that was that was my role models was my my cousins and we all lived on the fifth floor and the fifth floor of 42 Rivington Street was all my cousins it was like 20 of us mm-hmm. uh, so imagine like 20 kids just running from apartment to apartment and, and running up and down the fire skate and and as a hobby we would just like hang out in the roof you know mess around throw eggs at people and and pull pranks and throw bottles off the roof and fireworks and all the crazy stuff you could mm-hmm. probably could think of but that that's that's what i looked up to was my, my older cousins and that was my like that was my father figures basically uh, my, my dad was not around mm. so um you know one of the things that uh really struck me uh in your ted talk you know that i saw was that you know somebody said you know what do you want to be when you grow up and you said your answer to that question was rich and I'm, I'm curious, um, one, you know, was there anything else that you wanted to be? And did you have any other alternative path for getting to, you know, being rich? And then we'll talk about how you actually did get rich. <laughs> uh, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't think about anything else, uh, but being, having, having a house, having a car and being wealthy. And that was like my, I don't know, that was my ambition as a, as a little kid when I was like, I don't know, four or five years old, I was, I was like stealing baseball cards from 
economy candy store, uh, a candy store on the Lower East Side where they sold the, the like really old vintage baseball cards, and I would sell them in my school, and and I was just like me stashing money, collecting whatever I can. I remember, you know, washing cars, uh, opening up the fire hydrants, and and like making a couple bucks like that, and. And that was just my ambition. If, it, if I was not making money, I didn't want to deal with it. You know, if, if I was playing sports, it was because I was I was betting on the sport. You know, like I was trying to, you know, beat you in a basketball game for five bucks or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, I don't know where the ambition, I guess the ambition came from, you know, seeing my mom struggle. And, uh, and I, I mean, my mom dealt with a lot. And she, uh, I remember her going to like, even to the Salvation Army. And, and as you know, like Salvation Army clothing is like the cheapest things you could buy. And I remember her like switching the tags off uh, and getting a cheaper price. You know, she was not, I, I know it's, it's not the right thing to do. And I, I don't, you know, my mom's always been a righteous person, but I think, you know, pushing somebody to a limit to do that. Mm-hmm. So she, she could clothe us um, was what what it needed to be done you know and uh um yeah it was just things like that you know like made me view things and 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 having her like tell me me oh i can't you know i can't afford this or that and like deny me things made me frustrated and i would like throw tantrums like i want this and i would see like even my cousins i mean we were all pretty poor but they they had more than i did i was you know at least they had a a nintendo i had fucking like i would make up games <laughs> um you know that then uh, and that was my lifestyle and when, when people and i literally told teachers like i want to be rich and they're like oh what are you gonna do to be rich and i'm like i don't know I, mean, I just want to be rich mm-hmm. um and that was that was my response and and i got and I became rich. <laughs> so let's talk about how you actually got rich, because I know it, it goes. You, know, you didn't get rich stealing baseball cards and selling them to kids at school. <laughs> no, no, I definitely didn't get rich uh, stealing baseball cards. Uh, so I, I got I got really uh, involved in, in dealing drugs at a very early age. Uh, at thirteen, uh, it just came to me. I was I was a kid that I was already, you know smoking weed at at eleven, and I would go to junior high, and uh, people. Would, you know, gather money and like give me the money so I could buy that weed, um, and uh, and it it became like a supply and demand for me as a kid. And uh, at thirteen, I, I like put a hundred bucks together and I bought my first ounce of, of weed, and I basically took that and made like almost three hundred bucks. Um, and from there, it just kept you know duplicating. I mean, it didn't. It took a while before I was making real, real money. A lot of people think, oh, you're selling drugs, you're rich. But it, it doesn't work like that. It's actually sure. like, it's like a real entrepreneurship business. Yeah. Uh, where, where you start off fucking broke uh, and then you, you escalate. And, and from there, I just started, you know, dealing weed. And then I started getting involved with coke and crack. And I started dealing with this guy, uh, Junebug. He was he was basic, he was like my father figure in the streets, uh-huh. and, um, and he put me on to you know how to cook crack and like you know how to measure stuff and and um, and I started off with just an eight ball and I graduated to a, a, a kilo and a couple kilos after after a while. Um, but I, how I did it, I, I changed the way we sold drugs. So Junebug was like. 
Jumban ran Eldridge and Broome, which was a corner, a drug corner on the Lower East Side. And it was like, no, like, basically, you go there to buy drugs. Um, and 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 Jumbug like retired, left, um, did his own thing. I I, I don't want to say where he went, but um, and, and he left me the corner, and I I basically inherited the corner when I was like sixteen, uh, seventeen actually, and and I remember because I, I I grad I actually graduated from high school uh, that time, and and I I took everything I learned, and I I, I got frustrated at the fact that that um that i was being stopped by cops all the time um and and that's not something that junebug told me to, about he basically he uh he he just told me how to sell drugs sell drugs and like make drugs and like you know distribute it out in the streets but i was getting stopped because of the way i looked i would wear like a do-rag my my hat was backwards my jeans were like below my ass like that i looked like a kid that was selling drugs and I was getting stopped almost every single day. Uh, I mean, the fifth and the seventh precinct know, know my name. Uh, and used to, I mean, I knew the officer's names cause they used to just throw me on a wall and just start slapping me around. And, and, and sometimes they would take the drugs away from me and just leave. Um, but I, I remember, you know, I, I said, I, uh, I need to change the way I look. And, and something just clicked on me. Uh, actually, it happened after I went, I was arrested. So I, I was in and out of jail since I was 13. Um, but I remember the, I remember like the third time I was arrested, I was 17. And, um, and I went to the court and I faced a judge and I wore the suit. But on my way going to court and wearing the suit, I realized that nobody was e even recognized me. And, uh, and I felt like incognito in a way. So that's exactly what I did. I, I started wearing like a tie business suit and, and you know, I ba I went to like, forgot what, what I went to, uh, I think it was Century 21 and bought like a whole outfit for the week, like a button down, you know, slacks. And, and then I, I went to Kinko's um, I went to Kinko's at the time and printed out 10,000 business cards. It, it stated happy endings on a card. Uh, not the right <laughs> branding. Sure. Uh, but, but there was a, there was a bar on a block that was called happy endings, which was a real happy endings back in the day. And they had like all the Asians and that stuff, but, um, they closed that down. Like the, the feds, uh, shut that down. And then they opened up this, this bar Call happy endings and but that's where i got like my first clientele um because uh, like all these hipsters started moving to the lower east side in the early 2000s um and it was completely getting it was a, probably the first name you hear all these neighborhoods getting gentrified around the country right now but that was probably the first neighborhood in the whole country being gentrified and and happy endings was uh, a club where they all these hipsters were going in there sniffing coke all the time and I started just marketing. I, I would go up to them and tell them, yeah, I got blow. And, and some people would be like, you have blow, what, what, what? Like, I'm gonna call the cops. I'm like, no, I mean like, I'm gonna give you a blow job. Uh, that was like a joke, but like I got away with shit and I, you know, and it, it, it worked. And I gave out these 10,000 business cards. It, it, it blew up. I, I eventually, you know, started with one phone and uh, and had seven phones at one time, and literally, 
I was picking up like two phones at the same time and putting them both on each ear and saying, hello, how are you doing? Like, where are you at? Where are you at? This person would tell me they're on 20, 30, and 5th. This person would tell me I'm on 14th and 2nd. I would give this person five minutes, give me 10 minutes, write it down on an easel board, send my friend over there. And it was, it became like a whole dispatching service. Um, it was like Uber before Uber. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and it, and it, it went it went crazy, um, it went, and I was making over two million dollars a year in nineteen at that point. Um, I it, it, it took a while. Uh, it took from you know de- doing deliveries on the streets to you know coming up with this idea and then executing on the idea, and then and then just like struggling after a while, just making it happen. Going you know buying a hundred grams, two hundred grams. Then finding connects where I would I would do like dumb shit where I go to I'll fly to Puerto Rico, you know, put a you know a whole kilo of cocaine in my underwear and just come back in a plane and like you know just go back to my room, start cutting up the coke and, and just like make shit happen like that. And then it was just it was it was definitely every day was a, a freaking movie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was nuts. Do you ever think you were gonna get caught during this entire time? Um, I mean, in the beginning, I thought I was going to get caught, but when once I had people uh, working for me um, and and I was making a lot of money, I was I was just basically collecting, you know, picking up the money and not doing anything. You know, these people. I had a dispatch. I had two dispatchers. I had uh, around twenty cars, and and we had two shifts, so twelve hour shifts. Uh, each each person would make easily around fifteen hundred to four grand a day, um, and and it was just it was just me collecting money. I had like I didn't even have to touch the, the drugs after a while, mm-hmm. uh, but it, it got it got boring. <laughs> it got boring because it, it became like a corporate job. For, for, <laughs> You know, I, I felt like I was sitting in a, like, going to work, going in a cubicle, you know, and, like, it, it was not, I was not in the middle of it anymore, and, and it was not a startup, it was, like, I went fucking corporate already, and, <laughs> and, and, and it was whack. So, were you tracking all of this, like, via spreadsheets? I mean, how did you manage it? Um, <clears throat> like, how, did you have a system for managing all of this? Yeah, no, I did I, well, I had a system, I had uh, marble notebooks. Uh, and that was, and that's how I kept my like books. And, uh, and then I had, uh, a easy, so I had an easel board with, um, so I would put my dispatcher in an apartment. They, they both had a condo, um, that I got them and they, I would stick them in there and they'll just be there like all day, all night. And they'll write every person that's calling. Uh, we, we would talk about, we would say how many girls you want, or we would have different codes. Um, how many t-shirts you want um, and stuff like that. Some people was like, I need two t-shirts or three t-shirts or five. And that meant like how many grams you want it. Yeah. Uh, and each, each gram was a hundred bucks. Um, and we were, and I was getting, you know, at one point I was getting grams at, at $17. Uh, I was getting $17,000 kilos. Mm-hmm. Um, and each key is a thousand bucks. I mean, a thousand kilograms. Uh, so I would make a thousand, thousand bags out of that. And that would be, that's how we did it. Hmm. 
What uh, what misperceptions do you think that people have about the types of people who end up doing this? You know, drug dealers or people who you know are your dispatchers. Like, what do you think people like me and, and people who aren't exposed to this world have as misperceptions? Because most of my perception of of this kind of life is based almost entirely on what I've seen in the movies. Yeah, it's I I, I, I don't know. It, it, it is in a certain way, um, like if you you're dealing in the, in the hood. But when I was I mean, you you face like other drug dealer like zones where I you know I've I've had fights because when I was a kid one and, and this is, so my mom lived on Rivington Street and I was basically not allowed to sell drugs on Rivington Street but I was allowed to sell drugs on Broom Street which is two blocks away um, and I would and sometimes I would cross over and like meet my customer over there. And I remember the the guy that ran a block over there, um, black. He, he, you know, me and him got at it, and he was like six four, you know. And, and it was like, you know, you respect each other's corner, and and that's how it was. And I mean, you get in the streets when you're dealing, you know, you go through being. I, I I've had my team get robbed, tied up, and you know, shot at, and all that stuff. Like all that comes with the territory, so. Uh, but when I was when I was operating as a as a delivery service, it was it was no not no danger at all. Um, I mean, the only danger dangerous part was of like being stopped and pulled over and being found with like a lot of drugs on you. Know, but I was I was I was not doing that anymore. And, and I guess the perception of what people think is like we we all grow up and and uh, we have a certain like instinct of of like we're killers and we're gangsters and all this other stuff it's not you know i don't i don't think that's the that's the factor i think everybody's grown up innocent and and we learn this and sometimes we we adapt to our environment um but i i'm not nobody i've worked with or dealt with or even when i've been locked up with you know killers and people that have done like multiple homicides and they've been like the most nicest people in the world. They've just yeah. been in cir- certain circumstances that led them to do those things. So sure. uh, I don't think anybody is really evil down like in it, like inside themselves. I think people are just, people commit these things mm-hmm. due to uh, certain circumstances. Yeah. So how did you finally get caught? Wow. Uh, so this is a, a little bit of complicated, not complicated, but it's a, it's a like a couple turn stories. Uh, I, I was I was caught. Um, so I had this the dispatchers right. So one dispatcher, his name was Ed. Uh, he basically uh, started stealing customers away from me. Um, he he opened he started he started a new phone line, and this phone line um, he was stealing my customers and giving them a, a new delivery card and was saying, you know, call this number, blah, blah, blah. And then one of my like faithful old time customers who had my personal number calls me and he's like, yo, this guy gave me like some fucking like Tylenol shit that, uh, you know, this shit is whack. Like what's going on. And I, and, and by the way, this guy gave me a, a different card. Uh, do you have a new number? And I was like, no, can you like send me that number? So he sends me the number I call that number, Ed picks up, I'm like, what the fuck is he doing? And and he was like, oh, what are you talking about? I'm like, yo, you fucking steal my clients through this phone. And he's like, no, 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 I'm not doing any of that. So I went, I had a connection in the like T-Mobile store and all my phones were like 
pre-play phones on, on T Mobile under T Mobile and, and uh next out. So I go over it and I take that number, I shut it down, and I reopen all the phones. Uh I op- I like buy new phones and I reopen all the phones of myself and then I just I stopped dealing with dispatchers and I took over everything. And then um and then I took that phone that you were stealing my customers away from me. But not knowing that that phone was being tapped by federal agents. So he ran into federal agents some way, somehow, and gave him the card. And and I began sending, you know, my drivers over to the to federal agents. We 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 got caught with like around forty sales. Um, and and the last day I got caught, I was sending. So I sent one person, uh, one person to make a delivery, and we was using. I don't know if you remember the next sales. So when you go, you know, click click, and like. You hear the bleeps, mm-hmm. you know, the walkie-talkie Nexos. And uh, and I sent um, a message to Juan, who was one of my delivery guys. And I was like, yo, go over here. And when he went over there, his phone was, you know, you know when it was going beep, beep, and it was not going through. And I was like, oh, maybe the phone, he ran out of battery or some shit. Um, and, but the client kept calling me. He was like, I don't see him. I don't see him. And then I, I, it was like a Thursday night and it was so busy. I had probably like 30, 40 people waiting to be delivered, uh, have a delivery done to them within like an, an hour, a uh, couple hours. Uh, so I, I started sending a couple other drivers and, and then they, they, I got the message that it was, it was being like beep, beep. And then I got another call and it was beep, beep. And I kept sending all my drivers over there and it, it was fucking like, uh, you know, I was like, what the fuck is going on? I was worried. I thought all these guys were like partying or some shit. And I, I thought like, cause it, it has happened before where they like go out, they find a girl and they disappear for the night and I got to go like chasing after them. Um, but I decided to, you know, get out of the, the house, uh, the stash house I was in uh, where I was answering the calls and where I actually went over there, picked up drugs uh, and when I was leaving the house, I was stopped by this white guy. And, uh, and the, 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 the house was in the Bronx. And, like, I mean, you don't see any white people in, the, in this part of the Bronx. It was in, like, Hunts Point area. And, um, and I go in there, and, and I come out of the house, and this white guy stopped and says my name. He says, Cos Marte. And I'm like, what, who the fuck is this? And uh, he's like, this is a drug enforcement agent, uh, Joseph King, uh, your whole operation is over. So I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? And I like turned around to run away and I turned around and just a whole bunch of agents just threw me on top of my car. Um, You know, they took me, they had a warrant for the house. They took me upstairs. And then when they take me upstairs uh, to the second floor where I had all the drugs at, um, they knew exactly where the drugs were. And uh, I had about like 400 pairs of Jordan sneakers. I was, I was like obsessed with Jordans. Um, and they went exactly to the Jordan box where all the drugs was at. And they opened it up and they said, we know everything. And I'm like, how the fuck you know that? Only three people know that shit. So when I, I, I get to the precinct, my whole team is in there. We're in different holding cells. And I'm like, who the fuck told? And nobody's like, no, they're blah, 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 blah. And then I come to find out that the first guy I sent on the delivery 
he's been in the precinct for like five hours and he basically spilled the beans and told him exactly where everything was and shit like that and um and i was caught and when i while i was in that prison cell um they they uh take my wallet away they cancel all my cards they take my money and all that stuff and uh, they had me back my my wallet, and when they had me back my wallet, I had a picture of my son there, and and I, st- I had a couple cards, and then I I look in it, I had like a little hole in the wallet, and I looked in it, and I had ten pieces of acid, um, and I decided to take those ten pieces of acid while I was in that cell, and and then the <laughs> then the um, the DA, uh, the DA calls me to the office. They have like a secret indictment and they're telling me, you know, to trying to get me to snitch and they're saying, you know, we know everything, but if you turn the people you get it from over, we'll give you a lesser sentence. We'll work with you. And I was just like crying hysterically. Like I was, I was, I was laughing. Like it was fucking crazy. I was like laughing my ass off and I said fuck you and like started cursing at them and they was like are you okay they noticed that I was like fucked up on some shit and I was like you guys gave me 10 pieces of acid back I'm fucking tripping balls and they threw me back in a cell and when I go see the judge the judge is like you're still high and I'm like smiling my ass off and saying like yep and and then DA's like well we're we're uh we're trying to get him 15 to life. They, I mean, there was, your first plea was 15 to life. They was trying to charge me with the kingpin laws. Uh, I was my third felony and, and I, and I fit under those qualifications and, and it was crazy, man. It was crazy. Wow. Wow. Um, <clears throat> tell me about your first night in prison. First night in prison. You mean the first time or the last time? <clears throat> the last time. So the last time, uh, so you, first you go to jail. So the difference between jail and prison and jail, you, you're, you're waiting to be sentenced. So you're, you know, being, you know, like waiting to see the judge again. And then you eventually cop out or you go to trial and plead guilty. Um, but while I was in the first day, the first day sucked. I remember we, we, we go through central bookings. Central bookings is like the dirtiest, most crowded place in the fucking system. And like, it's like 40 men in one cell and, um, there's one toilet. There's always like a few homeless people there just stinking up the place. And it was, it was like one of the most disgusting things. And they give you, uh, like this, bologna cheese sandwich with a with a hot warm milk carton and and you you you're there for like 24 to 48 hours and 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 that's what you eat and it's just like so so you get your 24 to 48 hours and then you go to your 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 cell um and then i get to my cell and it's like after dealing with that for like 48 hours you you feel relieved a little bit but that's like pretty much the first time you get on on an actual phone, and so I, I call I call my wife, and um, and she was just crying. Um, well, my my girl my ex my girlfriend at the time, uh, she was just she was just crying, and 
and that was a that was a sad moment and then I called my my mom and she uh my mom was like you know it was it was like a revolving door for her you know she dealt with it multiple times um I was in and out of jail like 10 times um and uh yeah it was not you know first day is are, are the worst man I think that's probably the worst part of the the, the system is, is actually dealing with the first couple of days um but j- jail from when I was younger to to the time I returned was different um it was different in the sense that it was less violent um even though things happen pretty much every day but um I remember as a kid going in as an adolescent I had a I, I fought the first day I was there and I had to fight every single day before I felt, you know, went to bed, you know, um, just cause I was not part of a gang. And if you're not part of a gang, then you, you got to fight. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. 
Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Mm. Wow. So I want to spend a little bit of time um, before we get into what you're actually up to today, uh, talking about the criminal justice system and, and kind of, you know, um, you know, what your perspective is from having been on the inside of it. You know, he's, uh, you may have seen it or you may have come across some of the, the material about it. There was a documentary that I saw um, where a prison warden from Norway, um, from their maximum security facility, came to, um, you know, came to one of the, the you know, toughest prisons in the United States, a place called Attica somewhere. And, you know, when you look, when you contrasted the two systems, it was, it was like night and day. In Norwegian prison seemed like a five-star hotel. And yet, um, you know, they, they really seem to have very different sort of, you know, policies in terms of, of criminal justice reform. So I'm really curious, like, you know, what do you, what do you think that, you know, those of us who probably will never see, hopefully never see the inside of a prison cell, um, what, do you, what misperceptions do you think we have about prison? And, and what is your thought on, you know, um, you know the contrast in, in our criminal justice system versus the others? I mean, the, the Scandinavian prisons are like just so progressive and and i feel i i wish we had that in america maybe we we could eventually uh you know you know implement those those uh you know structures over here but uh the system over here sucks like everything is just dirty you're in a cell that sometimes like your water's coming out green um you got bugs all over the place you, 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 some, and if you're not in a cell, then you're sleeping side by side, you know, in, in multiple beds um, with like 50 other people where, you know, you sleep basically with one eye open because you don't know if somebody's going to do something to you at the middle of the night. Um, it's, it's, it's a disgusting place. You know, I got to. Uh, but I, I, I was, I think I was more afraid of the guards themselves than the inmates. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause you, you just see the guards bring the drugs in, the guards like beat you up. Like it, it's just, it's, it's a dirty game. Um, I remember, you know, the last time I was locked up and I was, I was like smuggling weed and all this stuff. I was, I was like, doing all the crazy shit but um and i was selling dr- drugs in there and i was making that hooch but i i remember uh me smoking a joint in my cell and um and this officer came up to my cell i don't know mention his name but he he smelled the weed and he says crack cell 28 and and in the cell you cover basically you cover the window area so the officers can't see and I heard him say that, and my door started opening, and I took uh, the joint, and I, like, flushed it in the toilet. And and he was like, what are you smoking in here? What the fuck are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. He takes me, throws me in, you know, cuts me up with the zip ties, um, and then starts searching my cell. I didn't have anything on my cell, um, except I, I actually did have a, a, a knife that he didn't find, but... He started searching my cell and he went under my pillow and he pulled an ounce of weed out. And and he was like, this is yours. And I'm like, what the fuck? Like, I wish I had an ounce of weed and I knew about it in my cell. And, uh, and, and come to find out, he was like smuggling the weed in and trying to charge me for that. Um, but he knew. So he basically tested me out. 
he was bringing it for this other guy who was like head of the, the house unit that was also selling weed in there and and he knew that I bought a joint off of him um, and he was trying to see if I was going to snitch on him so he like brought me to the bubble so the bubble is like the officer's like cube where it's all glass it's basically like commercially sealed with a little slot uh, and he brought me in a bubble and I'm cuffed and um, and he picks up the phone he's like I'm gonna call the sergeant so he picks up the phone and it was one of like those old school like you know you can hang up the phone like with the you know press of, uh, of a finger so I, I, I hung up the phone and I was like come on man give me a chance blah 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 you know I'm talking and then I started screaming out my boy's name I was like yo come on talk to this motherfucker so he goes in the side he talks to him He's like, you know what? I'm gonna give you a chance, but what I want you to do, I want you to clean the house, like clean the the cell blocks. And I was like, all right, done. I'm not going to the box. But he was trying to give me a year to, you know, you get caught with that amount of weed, and, and there you you go to the box for about a year, you know. And so it was, it's it's, it's just it's dirty politicians, man. It's crazy. It's yeah. crazy. So talk to me about how you get from, you know, being in prison for being a drug kingpin to becoming a startup founder. Like, walk me through that journey. So, yeah, I uh, it, it was towards the end of my incarceration where I, I thought about this business plan. But before then, I, I was in jails in Rikers Island for about a year. And I pleaded out to seven years in pr- uh, prison. So I cop out and I get sent upstate. And when you get a sent up state, or actually state property, so you get, it's a better facility, um, a little bit cleaner, but all those officers are like crazy, like real racist, and most predominantly like white officers who live in like West Bubble fucking upstate New York. Um, and, and, uh, and, and as soon as you get there, they smacking people up, calling them niggers, spicks and all that shit. And, um, and, and 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 then you get sent to the medical unit, and that was the first time I seen a doctor in so long. And um, and and the doctor basically, um, you know, takes my blood work. I was a phlebotomist. Uh, they take my blood work, and then they they send it back for tests. And then I get a call back to the medical unit uh, a week later. And when they called me back, they, they told me, they sat me down and they was like, you know, your cholesterol levels are so high that you could probably die of a heart attack within five years. And I was like, what? I was like, no, it's not. Like, I didn't believe it. I, you know, I felt like I was, I was pretty overweight, but I, I didn't feel like I was gonna die in a, in a few years. Um, so they, they told me that and what they recommended was to like eat correctly and then, you know, work out. Uh, first they told me like start you know jogging around the yard and stuff like that so I I went quickly back to my cell and I started like doing dips and push-ups and and jumping jacks on the side of my bed and and um and and I I began moving but it only lasted about five minutes because I was like fuck that (laughs) this shit is too hard I can't work out uh and and I lay back on my bed but it was it was not until the next day when I heard uh, them call the rec yard uh, that I got up and I was like, I, I can't die in this place. So I, I went out to the yard and I started, I started running laps and, and nobody used to run, you know, like it was just like, 
looked down. I don't know. I just looked weird and, and stupid. So people would make fun of me, like call me like fat Forrest Gump and, and all these like honey bun jokes and, you know, call, like they used to make fun of me cause I was fat and I was like working out. And I basically like brand sometimes like cursing at people and like sticking my middle finger up and people just laugh. Uh, but I, I kept running and I kept going back to my cell working out and eventually I lost 70 pounds in six months. Um, and I, I continued, it became a lifestyle where I, I built myself up to like working out like three hours a day. Uh, and, and then I got, I had this one guy after, you know, running in the yard, one guy, his name was Bus. Uh, Bus came up to me. And um, he, uh, for some reason, I used to smoke cigarettes after my runs, and I was smoking a cigarette, and Bus comes up to me and says, you know, bust me down. So Bus was, we called him Bus because he was like the size of Bus. He was like 5'6", like 350 pounds. And, um, and, and I gave him half of my cigarette, and he's like, yo, I want to start working out with you. I want to start running, and, and blah, blah, blah. And I was like all right let's do it and i told him like yo i used to look like you and he's like get the fuck out of here and i showed him like my id picture my prison id picture and it was like me with a fat fat face and that was like my before picture for proof and he was like damn that was crazy so we uh so i got him i got him running with me and he he struggled more than me because he was really really out of shape and from for him we would like run from one light pole to the other and then walk a little bit and run and, and I, I just became like his trainer and then eventually two of his friends uh that panama came and they started running with us and then we started like forming a group and and doing these workouts all together in the yard and like i was standing in the middle and people form a circle and we'd like run through these whole routines all together um and collectively uh, I've, I've helped over 20 inmates who's over a thousand pounds combined uh and i took i didn't think anything of it it was just like us getting together building a camaraderie chilling workout team you know and then going back to ourselves and doing our time but it was not until the end of my incarceration where I had about, I went through this early release program, it's called Shock Incarceration. Um, and it, it basically saves you three years of your prison sentence. Uh, it saves you three years from your prison sentence if you complete the six months program. So I go through the program, um, I'm, I'm four months in it, I'm about to come home in two months. Uh, like my son just finished visiting me on the, in the visit room and I told him I'm coming home and, and I lied to him cause I, I didn't come home. Um, I had a, I had a really bad incident where this officer basically, you know, put he, puts me on the wall and they do random searches. They stop people on the wall and they search them all the time. But this officer like puts me on the wall, starts searching me and, um, and, and it started touching me in appropriate places between my legs. And I felt, I, I just felt like, I, I just, it was like a natural reaction where like, you know, he got close to my balls and I'm like, I just jerked my body, you know, so he could not touch me there. And, and, uh, and he said, don't fuck with me. And he quickly, like, without thinking, just like punched me with a closed fist behind my head. And I, I dropped down to the ground 
And when I dropped down to the ground, I had glasses at the time. I picked up my glasses and I turned around on him. And as soon as I turned around on him, uh, he pressed his button and his walkie-talkie. And that button is walkie-talkie is, is, we call it the pin. And as soon as that is pressed, the, the whole alarm for the whole prison goes off. If you're around that area and you're an inmate, you have to hit the ground. Like everybody's like forced to be on the ground. And, um, and about a dozen officers come in like less than a minute and just drop me quickly down on the ground, beat the, like started kicking me and hitting me and, and they coughed me up and they throw me in solitary confinement. And when they throw me in solitary confinement, I was like, not devastated that I was in a box, but I was so mad that I had two months to go. And now I'm facing this freaking situation that might, you know, give me the rest of my sentence. And, uh, and because of that, they was trying to give me like three years, three more years in prison. And I was like, uh, this is freaking crazy. And I like, I, I was just walking back and forth from myself and I was in a 24 hour lockdown cell. And while I was walking back and forth, next thing I hear, I hear also behind the door and he opens up my slot where they give you the food at, like, you know, like you see it in the movies, they open up the slot. He passes me a paper pen and an envelope. And, and I quickly like grabbed that and I began writing a letter and I, I wrote out this like huge letter to my family like you know trying to get help get me out of here contact albany you know you report this incident this officer like violated me blah 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 and i enclosed the letter and then i realized i had no stamp to send out this letter with and i was going crazy i was going crazy because i didn't i didn't, I didn't know what to do um uh the the officer you know put me in a situation where I, I, I couldn't escape and um, and I started banging my head on the wall and, and I was in a cell where it was like about 110 degrees uh, there was like limited water you only take two showers a week um, I was I was basically naked walking around naked in my cell the whole time and there was like so many like bugs and it was so dirty and nasty and um and, and what I did, I, I basically, you know, uh, I just, I just laid there on my bed, you know, hopeless. And it was not until a couple of days later, when my sister um, heard that I was in solitary confinement, because I was constantly like calling my family, um, pretty much, like almost every day. And, uh, and she writes me a letter and tells me, "We know that you're in solitary confinement. Um, what I want you to do is read." read the Bible, read Psalm 91. And my sister's like super religious, like, hallelujah, amen, everything, like Mother Teresa's child. And I didn't believe in God. And I, I took that letter and I was like, fuck that. I don't need, like, I don't need God. I need, uh, I need a lawyer, get me out of here. And I took that letter and threw it in the corner of my cell and just laid back down. And um, it was not until like two days later where I decided to pick up the Bible out of boredom and I turned to Psalm 91 to the pages that she told me to read. And, and I turned there and I started reading it and it states, he who dwells in the shelter of the most high will rest in the shadow of the almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my shelter and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And as soon as I read that, a stamp fell out of my Bible. 
and it was a stamp that I needed to send out this 10 page letter out to my family with. And I, I had chills right now on my body. I felt like there was something bigger than myself in that cell. It was, it was, it was freaky. Um, and, and I, I, and for the first time I, I began praying and I felt so much regret for all the things I've done. And I started realizing that I was not only affecting my son and my family, but the thousands of people that are sold drugs to. And, and it became a whole web of destruction because I started thinking about these people's families that are sold drugs to and how they're being affected by the things I was doing to the, their family members. And, and for the first time I said, I need to pay back for the, these wrong doings that I've done. And it quickly like hit me like a light bulb and it said, I'm helping these guys in the yard work out. I love to work out. I, this is what I really want to do. And this is how I feel like I'm, I'm going to get back to society. So I, I took like these long sheets of foul paper, started drawing out like this whole spreadsheet of every day of the week, like writing a whole little business, mini business plan type of thing. And I, I closed it and I said, this is what I'm going to do when I come home. I'm going to start a, a prison boot camp. And I was I was released a year later from that that uh, prison, and and when I was released, I I started doing it. I started doing it in the park, and then I started like renting out these ballet studios. Uh, but it was a, it was a program that I got involved with called the Five Ventures. The Five Ventures believes that illegal entrepreneurs could become legal entrepreneurs, and they basically run this whole MBA course. You actually receive like an MBA certificate from Baylor University after you graduate, and um, and it's taught by like Harvard and Stanford MBA professors. And I went through this whole course, and it was like they really taught me how to run, uh, build a proper business plan, run a business and like make things happen, you know? And, uh, and they connected me with like the right people, but I, I was also networking myself. I would go up to anybody in the street and just like stop them and pitch them and primarily females with yoga pants. So instead of, <laughs> <laughs> instead of back in the day going after like the hipsters, you know, selling coke, to them I was going after like females with yoga pants now and, and it blew up and 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 now I've trained we've trained over 20,000 people uh, and it was it was it was just me in the beginning and, until I met uh, Sultan Malik Sultan Malik who did 14 years in prison 7 years in solitary confinement um, who I don't know how he's saying right now but He's not my senior trainer and my vice president of the company and is an amazing person. But he, he uh, sat down with me one day and, and asked for help. Um, as, as, so I was like, came in as an intern uh, doing, like doing, I had a side job, like doing a resume as a resume writer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Sultan sits down with me and is like, I want a resume, uh, tailored to be a fitness trainer. Um, I've been teaching these boot camp classes in the park, blah, blah, blah. I already have like five people and I'm like, Oh, well, but what's your, like, what's your previous job skills? And I see that he has like, he has a town where the prison facilities are. And he's like, I did maintenance and like, you know, I don't know, West, you know, some small town in upstate and I'm like that's uh, where the prison is and he's like yeah and then he admitted to me that he did 14 years in prison and um, 
And I was like, you know what? You got to come check out what I'm doing. So I give him my, I give him my business card and he comes at night and he sees my class and he's like, yo, I want to be a part of this. And, uh, and from there we, we, we grew it out. And then we started, our whole mission became, you know, hiring people coming out of prison to teach our fitness classes. Wow. Um, and, and that's, that's what our mission today is. So <clears throat> I think the, the, the sort of big question I'm left with is, um, the transition coming out, you know, I, I had, you know, as, as I've talked to you about before, I mean, we've had multiple people who have spent, um, you know, time in prison here on the show and, and always have some of the most fascinating stories. But one of the things I, I always hear is the transition coming out is almost as hard as it is going in. Uh, and I'm curious, you know, what is the experience of coming out like for most of these people? And, you know, why, you know, obviously, I think, you know, what you guys are doing, obviously, is is making that experience less painful. And, you know, hopefully reducing our, our recidivism rate significantly. Yeah, so every every person that's worked with with us now has not gone back. So we have a zero recidivism rate in, in combody. Um, so obviously, what we're doing is, is working. Um, but the first days, I mean, if, if you don't have family and you don't have any support, then, then you're pretty much fucked. You're going to a homeless shelter. Uh, you dealing with the fact that you have a background and like, you, you can't get a job most of the time. And, and it's, it's a struggle for me. Uh, personally, I, I came out and it was not easy. I was, I went back to my mom's house. I lost everything I, I had. Um, and I basically like lived in her couch for about a year. Um, worst, most uncomfortable couch. I think my jail bed was better than her couch. Um, but it was, it was, it was a struggle. Cause I remember going out to, you know, Times Square and Herald Square and all the, you know, with the new, new Manhattan Central, where they have all these like retail stores. And I went to pretty much every single store you could think of there and was like filling out applications. And I remember like receiving the, the you know, the tone and, and the body language of these managers that I was handing over my appl- application to where it says, you know, have you ever been convicted of a felony? And I always had to check yes. And when I would have that, application and they would look at and they'll and they'll just give me that shrub where like, oh yeah, we're gonna call you back, but like we're gonna throw a shit in the bottom of the pile and, and strut it. You know, and it was like it was frustrating, man. So like it was I felt like Combody was born out of desperation. Hmm. Wow. Um well, this has been really, really uh amazing, eye opening and then really thought provoking. Uh so I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews with the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I think I think what makes people unmistakable is I don't know. It's it's it's, it's got to be a genetic build. It has to be something with inside somebody that you could push somebody to the edge and and they're going to find some way or somehow to get out of it even if they want to give up uh, and, and certain situations don't allow you to give up or you know or push it to the edge but you you, you go and, and you just 
take that to the next level, you know, and, and escape. And I feel like that's what makes people unmistakable. You know, it's like, you know, pushing it, you know, day after day, delivering and making it happen. Ah. Wow. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us and uh, share your stories and your insights with our listeners. Where can people learn more about you and your work? So you could go to combody.com and, and see all our stuff there and, and watch our video on our descriptions and stuff like that. Or you can hit us up on, on Instagram, uh, DM us, combody, because it always goes down on the DM. Uh, or, or Facebook, you know, like our page, or, and just, just hit us up, you know. And if you want to come to the studio on the Lower East Side, which is built like a prison and you want that experience, we give it to you. It's on 294 Broom Street in the Lower East Side. Check us out. We're there. Super cool. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming. Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. 
head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.